0: Oh, buddy. Oh, no. In honor of Dolphin Tale 2, when have you felt the most actively embarrassed for an actor in a movie?
1: I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Melissa Leo in Olympus is Fallen because she got the shit beaten out of her and for nothing.
2: Uh, My name is Joanna Robinson. I'm going for Ben Kingsley in Prince of Persia. He telephoned that in, but at least he got a yacht, I'm sure, out of it
0: i'm dave with the seven and jeremy renner in any action movie missing impossible born avengers he's usually the second best guy for the job if not the fourth
1: i thought you said fifth
0: yeah well i softened up on him when i was writing it out
3: (laughs) (laughs) gentlemen you can't fight in here this is the war
0: room fine i can hear you now dimitri clear and plain and coming through
3: fine
0: i'm coming through fine too eh
2: Good, then, well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine.
0: Good. Well,
2: it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. Uh,
4: It's it's a a podcast. podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 39 for Tuesday, September 9th, 2014. There are no new reviews this week because apparently you're all protesting David Ehrlich leaving the country to go to the Toronto Film Festival. And honestly, I don't blame you. It's a travesty that he and Matt Patches dared uh, leave America. Do you guys have a? Guys want to complain about? Oh, I still have Joanna and Dave with the seven, by the way.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You guys myself. should uh, leave iTunes reviews if that's not what you garnered from what Katie said.
1: David will be back, ne- or yeah, David will be back next week as well. Patches, so uh, I promise this isn't a permanent state. I know David's everyone's favorite part of the show, so uh, please leave us some more reviews. in seventh grade back
2: when i was reading a lot of stephen king i i always
1: assume everyone did this did you guys also read stephen king in middle school was, was is there like a is that a common thing i actually I did mean, it in
2: college which makes me feel silly because it feels um, like a, it should be a middle school thing but from <laughs> college I
1: mean, in some ways it really shouldn't there are a lot of even just having you know i've gotten not that far through the stand because it's a really fucking long book um but there are already things that i'm reading now i'm just like oh wow i really was not I should not have read that as a child who didn't understand what was going
2: on. I Park. was really into Michael Crichton and John Grisham as a middle yeah, schooler. Like, those yeah, are my... Jurassic Park, way too young yeah.
1: to... Yeah, what is it? Children of the 90s. We'll have a whole other podcast about our inappropriate... <laughs> and
2: our like airport book obsession.
1: <laughs> I really want to know what fourth graders like read the Da Vinci Code in the yeah. same way and somehow <laughs> exactly. uh, got educated.
0: No, there um, had to be somebody because it has the exact same draw, which is just like this thing you're feeling like you feel like you're involved in something more adults and in like the Dan Brown case, it's like this hidden mystery that nobody saw.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've read all these the Da Vinci... I mean, not all. Of I read The Da Vinci Code because I was like, this is easy. And I imagine uh, fourth graders do the same thing. We're off track. The reason that we, that I decided to pick up The Stand mostly was because uh, there's a movie version happening, and it appears it's happening for real this time. There's been... I kind of lost track of the rumor mill after a while, but I'm pretty sure it's still going to be directed by Josh Boone, the guy who made The Fault in Our Stars, which is something I'll happily complain about later if you want. Um, but because we've all read The Stand, or Davis and watched the TV movie with Carrie Sinise, which...
0: I so, read like a fourth of it. Yeah, it's,
2: okay. <laughs> it's long. It's That's a really, like
1: it's a whole book. Really long book. <laughs> I, I
0: I didn't I I didn't start reading Stephen King like complete books until well after I was out of college, just as like to pass the time on like subways and on my futons that I lived in in that era. Multiple futons. Yeah, no, there were there had to be a lot. Uh yeah. they're easy to ruin those futons, but I like. <laughs> I actually spun out of the Dark Tower trilogy and on writing, which is oh, autobiographical yeah. oh, and yeah. also about actually writing things. Yep. So it's interesting. I, I approached him as like a pop craft artist, whereas my brother, he started reading Stephen King in like elementary school because he was weird and morbid. Um, and uh, yeah, I can't imagine. Like, I think he read like it in sixth grade. And That's having about read- when I read it. Oof. Having read parts of it, it's Oof. like this is, this is there's some really interesting sexual stuff
1: in yeah. there. Weird sex stuff in there for yeah. sure.
2: I uh, I'm not proud of this at all, but I've mostly read Stephen King to not to impress gentlemen in my life, but <laughs> but like at the urging of of various boyfriends. Who have been yeah. like read this? I love this, and I'm like, okay. So it's not like you know, I pretended to like football to impress them or something like that. But like, yeah, that's definitely it's was like the a classic boy thing when they're
1: just yeah, like, yeah, you'll be so into this.
0: Yeah, it goes thinking. the it goes the other way. I read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance for <laughs> somebody, not yeah. because I wanted to.
2: And I mean, I I, boy I thing. anyway, I enjoyed <laughs> what I read. I did. I definitely read The Green Mile before seeing the movie and uh, you know so usually I would also read whatever you know Shawshank Redemption or you know all the various usually there are novellas that have been turned into movies so
1: yeah because his books as we may discuss a second tend to be really long and really hard to adapt because there's a billion characters in them and The Stand notably more than any of them I think it's probably got more characters it has an abridged and unabridged version um I have the abridged version currently with me I think I read the unabridged one in middle school and God knows I cannot tell you the difference. Um, and it's been an obvious challenge to figure out how to adapt this book because it's got kind of this epic scale of good and epic battle of good and evil at the end of it. And it's got a plague in the beginning. Like there's all these very movie ish bits of it that you can really see happening. And there are some set pieces that. I really vividly remember from reading as a kid, like one character is trying to get out of New York City after everyone has died and kind of making his way past all of these dead bodies in the Lincoln Tunnel. And it, it, I think of it every time I go in the Lincoln Tunnel, which is terrifying. Um, but the <laughs> I just ran kind of a description of a version of the script that apparently isn't being used anymore. But it kind of turned everything into a you know Godzilla-style city-destroying battle at the end of it, which... Hmm. I think on a very basic level is that sounds like giant monsters.
0: It was like a magic fight between flag and Stu who made it all the way to Las Vegas in this version.
1: Yeah. And somehow like becomes magical, which he doesn't in the book so far as I remember. Um, But you've got like, you know, there's, then things like Matthew McConaughey being ru- rumored to play Randall Flagg, and who knows if that would happen. And then the potential to see all the stuff realized. So I guess kind of basic level question, and maybe Dave first since you saw the TV movie version, like is a movie version of The Stand a good idea?
0: Uh, a single movie version of The Stand, you have to be really sure about what story you're telling because what I like about the, the TV movie for ABC, I believe, is it's in four like ninety minute chunks, and each ninety minute chunk has like its little flavor. Like the first is like a the disease is taking over the world, the flu, Captain Trips, and then the second one is like all the survivors are sort of getting out of the city. It's like The Walking Dead, you know, other people are evil, and some other people are drawn to like this weird place. Act three is like everybody's sort of trying to make society better, and Act four. It sort of, it depends on how you read it. The What I like about having a really long book is it afford, uh, affords a whole bunch of different perspectives on what the ending is. So, like, in the greater world of Stephen King, it's like a lesser demon who almost gets a hold of a particular realm and gets fended off. But in the book, through the eyes of Mother Abigail and the people who buy into her belief, it's uh, the hand of God. So it's I like that that uh sort of re either reading could be there but if you're going to squish all of this into you know a 2 hour or 3 hour the way they're making movies these days movie i i could see changing the end if you're going for a different uh aspect of the stand
2: for some reason i thought i read an article that said they were going to split it into two films
1: well i read one that said that we're setting it for a sequel but right. that I mean, they're not going to set it up for a sequel. I mean, I don't really understand why they wouldn't do this as like... I mean, when you say four 90-minute episodes, I was like, oh, like Sherlock. Like, that model kind of went away for a long time and it exists again. Like, I can absolutely see HBO doing, like, a six-part stand. And I I don't truly get why it's going to be a feature film except... That's how things get developed these days. I,
2: I also watched the the miniseries. I watched it at some point in college over summer session when a bunch of us were there. And it was maybe one of my favorite TV watching experiences as like a group at the end of the day. Each day we watched an episode of The Stand. And I hadn't read the book at that point. I read the book after. It's not great that, that no, tv movie no.
0: i don't want to say that it's good it's but just it's the way so it's,
2: enjoyable it's a yeah. really enjoyable so. the way it's
0: divided i think is really smart storytelling yeah but that's like where their smart storytelling ends unfortunately
2: <laughs> no but well, i mean it's o- it's enjoyable in in the it's over the topness in uh, you know the ridiculous it's just a very enjoyable watch it's not like as bad as sharknado but it is well, right, kind it's, of it's,
0: it's one of the a really guilty early- pleasure watch <laughs> Yeah, it's one of the really early television examples of something that if you had read the book, I feel like the miniseries would play a lot better for you because it'll be like a highlight reel and you could sort of fill in the gaps in the storytelling and Mm -hmm. the motivation in the characters because they have to go so fast is sometimes really erratic and sort of, uh, you know, smooth it all over where like sort of like how the Harry Potter films work better if you've read the books than if they do if you're approaching them for the first time as a series of movies
1: although some people argue otherwise which confuses me well so. they're wrong but yeah, we don't have to discuss them right now <laughs> yeah. thank you i mean yeah actually when you when you bring up harry potter and then talking about that two-part film thing it's like oh yeah they probably will not make it two movies because that's what everyone does these days
2: right the twilight approach or what have you
1: yeah i think my, my main concern which has you know little to do with what i know about the story which is nothing is just i don't i don't don't get why the, the Fault in Our Stars guy got hired to make this movie. Like, I can't. Well, I thought it was.
2: See, you thought it was Sorry, what? I thought it was his pitch. Like, it's his baby, his project, not he was hired on by someone else. Is all my information well, incorrect?
1: Um, well, Uh-oh. I know that. I mean, at one point Ben Affleck was going to do it, and then he bailed. Like, it, the project definitely was in development before Josh Boone came on, but that doesn't mean he didn't come in and said, hey, I got the key to crack this whole thing. Oh, okay. And yeah. had a great idea. But I do think the way to make this, you know, not outbreak and not, you know, insert other disaster movie here is to make it visually interesting. And, like, I just, I have no idea what this guy would add to it.
0: Well, yeah, it's weird that the previous draft ended with a magic fight because, in order to make that magic fight feel emotionally worthwhile, you would have to skip a lot of, like, the outbreak stuff. I feel like if you're going to fit it into a single movie, because you really have to focus on, like, the. Randall Flag stuff, which means you have to get people having dreams, like really like, halfway through the first acts.
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, they really they could skip all the outbreaks stuff, but actually, wouldn't be a bad way to get around it, just because that's the most commonly. Th- you know, we saw Rise of the Planet of the Apes.
0: Well, and every zombie property. That is, it existed between here and the last time we saw the stand it, it really <laughs> kind of
1: before the last time we saw the
0: stand <laughs> well it makes it, it makes ideas like in the television series now if you watch it that like the first guy wouldn't know to like not leave the gate open when he's leaving the facility just mm-hmm. otherwise he might spread the virus Now I feel like people's level of zombie awareness is high enough that it applies to lots of different disaster situations. So really just make sure you know your zombie escape plan.
1: Okay. I guess I would... We want the meta version of The Stand where everyone has watched Dawn of the Dead enough times to (laughs) to figure their shit out.
2: (laughs) I would say 29 Days Later. 28 Days Later. 29 Days Later. (laughs) 29 Days Later, sorry. Little known sequel. Yeah, (laughs) Or just The Stand. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, what were you going to say before? I don't know. Um... But yeah, if you are gonna watch I mean you could pick up this two inch book if you wanted to. I think it's two inches. I think that's safe to say. Yeah. Um or you could just watch Rob Lowe in all his glory and the guy from Coach wearing overalls. It's Wait, amazing. Coach from Coach or no from Coach. The blonde guy, the big blonde guy from Coach.
0: M O O L Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> that spells Tom Cullen. <laughs>
1: you guys. Obviously, I'm gonna go see this movie now. Yeah, obviously,
0: it took a great to deal it. of restraint to not start making those jokes much earlier in the segment.
2: The, the Marshall's dad from How I Met Your Mother. Yes, yes, that's a more to- that's a more topical reference. <laughs> so Thank listen, you. I'll-,
1: I'll talk about Coach all you want to talk about Coach. All right. More importantly, our Coach podcast begins next week. Which we watch the entire series. Um, yeah, The Stand. Let's see how this happens. I might put down ten dollars that it actually never happens. Just because it seems like one of those things that might get talked about forever, but never. They've been talking
2: about the Gunslinger for uh, since before I was born, I think, right? Well, so
1: this sets up the Gunslinger universe. Hey, we live
0: to see John Carter get made into a movie, guys. And that worked out really well.
1: (laughs) I know it worked out fantastically. Yeah, that's true. And uh, we we live to see Anchorman too. So really, anything Anything could happen. Stand
4: Stand up. Stand up. Cool. Just like that cool. Just like that, Hell yeah, DJ,
1: bring that bag. None of us call. are at Toronto, so we can't actually speak authoritatively about what's getting buzz. That'll be uh, David and Patch's job. But uh, I read Jordan Hotgwa edited and then read Jordan Hoffman's uh, Review of Hungry Hearts, which stars Adam Driver. He's got like three movies at Toronto, but this is the one that's kind of Rosemary's Baby he. Which is... one's the
0: Star Wars?:
1: uh, The Star Wars One is the secret screening. you didn't hear about it.
0: No. All
1: of episode seven, man. Get no there. one
0: tells me anything about Star Wars. No, no. And you
1: know nothing about Star Wars. No. Um, but part of what Jordan wrote about was that, you know, people like Star Wars fans may or may not be worried about Adam Driver because he's kind of played this one kind of weirdo in a lot of his different roles. But he talked about how in this movie he really shows a lot of range. He does a lot of things that maybe people didn't think he could do. And I wondered what other, you know, popular upcoming actors we all like, but then, may have realized we've only seen them play the same character a couple of times and who we're kind of waiting for them to see reveal themselves more. Uh, Dave, you have a good answer to start.
0: Oh, I want to go with Jack Houston from American Hustle and uh, Boardwalk Empire and Kill Your Darlings where he showed a lot of range, but I want him to do like a sort of crazy more actor part and less uh, inhabiting a very, I guess, damaged male ego part. Um I guess I've just been looking at his IMDb page and apparently he was in Outlander, the uh, aliens crash land on the uh, Earth during the Viking era movie. And so I don't know how big of his part is in there, but maybe he shows some sort of wacky Viking range there. Uh, let me know. But otherwise, I want him to do something crazy. I want him like, a, to do a crazy performance that he creates out of nothing rather than a performance he can interpret.
2: Joanna, how about you? Um, my pick, I don't know how well I answer this prompt, but I'm going to talk about this actress anyway, which is, uh, Karen Gillan, who, uh, was famous... For Doctor Who, and then she also has a new pilot on ABC called Selfie. She was in Guardians of the Galaxy, obviously the biggest film of the year, but her character Nebula was such a non-entity, forget about it. That, I feel that's... so
1: bad that she shaved her head for that part. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's, what a waste. But she
1: should have been my answer in the beginning, in the later <laughs> question.
2: <laughs> I feel bad for Karen Gillan and her razor burn. Have you seen <laughs> the, the, the video of her shaving her head off is pretty adorable, actually. Oh, really? But That's the problem I want to talk about in terms of Karen Gillan is much like, I don't know, let's say Zoe Deschanel recently, Karen Gillan trades a lot on cute. Nebula, of course, is something different, but I'm not counting that because it just did not register at all. But both Selfie and Doctor Who, there's just a lot of trading in on cute and she is so cute, but I like to think that she has something more in her. I, I really want that for her. So I would like to see Karen Gillan do something, not like, you know, go Charlize Theron and monster, but just something where she's not trading in on her cute factor. Zoe Deschanel, earlier in her career, I feel like did not quite make such a deal out of her cuteness. So that's my answer.
1: Hmm. Um- my answer is someone who also does well on Cute, uh, but much more famous, Emma Stone. I feel like she is doing something really well and really important, which is being the female comedian who can, you know, who is the funny one who isn't the accessory in a comedy, which she's been really good at, and even in something like Gangster Squad, which is a terrible movie, like she's kind, of, she's got the spark to her. She's that's a really important thing for a young woman to be able to do. But I don't think she's really done much of anything else. And I mean, the help she was kind of like this. Avatar figure for white people that I, I I will defend the help for a long long time, but I I would never say that Emma Stone is anything remarkable in that movie. Um, and I think she just I don't know she like seems to be doing well like working for older white men who think she's adorable like in the Woody Allen movie. She's got a Cameron Co movie coming up like there's kind of a worrying trend in that, but she's in Birdman which has been getting some of the most incredible reviews imaginable since it premiered at the Venice Film Festival I haven't seen it I don't think any of us have seen it um so there I mean this might turn around really really fast but I I do I want something more from her in particular if because I know she's really good at doing that thing and because she's famous enough to do a lot of different things and you know Jennifer Lawrence has kind of taken this it girl status and done a huge variety of roles to her credit and Emma Stone hasn't really gotten that chance yet and I'm kind of waiting to see her break out of it
0: that's like oh sorry oh no no you first
2: well, I was gonna say when you when you said what Emma Stone is doing, how she's doing it well, and how it's important, I thought about Rose Byrne because I think Rose Byrne is doing something very similar as well. Uh, but she also has a bunch of meaty, dramatic roles under her belt too. So yeah, I, she's done
1: a really. I mean, there are a lot of times where I haven't recognized her from role to role because Rose Byrne yeah. is a lot of different. Like, I mean, and she was on Damages for a Damages.
2: Years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, and she met up with Brad Pitt and Troy. So how you know? Holy where do you go from shit! There?
1: Really? <laughs> yeah. Whoa! But,
2: but, Troy? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I would like to see Emma Stone do something like a damages or something like that. I agree with you. It's a good, it's a good pick. Or not
1: even a necessarily meaty drama, but like a different kind of comedy, like something that's not like you, even a bridesmaids would might be good for Emma Stone. Like she's done really well, like being with the boys and being the girl who is as funny as the boys, which is not an easy thing to do. And Rose Byrne does that really great. In Neighbors. Um, but I wonder what like what else she's got up.
2: Well, you don't think easy a.
1: Yeah, easy. I know. I don't think easy is as much of that, and that's like a lead part for her. But that I think is the template for everything else that she's done. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
1: And I'm waiting for something else. And Matt Patches hates easy. A fun fact. God. I know that guy. Don't
0: don't want him. I almost don't want to throw to him right now. I know.
1: Sorry, Patches. We hate you. Have fun, Canada.
0: (laughs) He's not gonna listen to this. No, sure. He'll never hear this.
3: Oh, it's segment three with Patches and David. We're here at in Toronto uh, International Film Festival. We're beaten. We're tired. We're, uh, we're in the thick of it. We, we are husks of men. We've been in the trenches. There's probably a, a, a good novel quote here. World War I. Oh, uh, well, I, I can't even remember the book that I'm trying to reference William here. William
4: Tecumseh Sherman <laughs> once said. I don't know. I don't yeah, know you I'm have nothing anything. here. I
3: what? Don't... We should just get to the thick of this. Yeah. We are at the Toronto Film Festival, and uh, we're 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 doing an update here. Um, we're totally winging it. I'm sure the podcast has been great up until now. Um, Reasonably sure, David. What is the narrative of this year's of the 2014 Toronto International Film Festival? From it's... what I hear, and based on my own opinion, um, the movies are okay.
4: <laughs> well, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to say because I think. You couldn't sleep on the first night because you... This is my Disney world. I I could not fall asleep the first night because I was too excited. Um, And it was very easy to fall asleep in subsequent nights because I was so tired. Um, But I think that everybody comes at it from a very different place because your experience is really dependent upon what you've already seen. Uh, I think a lot of people have gone to Cannes or went to Telluride or Venice and a lot of the titles that had me so excited and, and filled up especially the... First day or two where they had a lot of the can repeats were already off the menu for them, uh, and that can give a very different impression on a film festival. Uh, and when you're only focusing on the films that had their world premieres here, and of course there's been a lot of hubbub over what that means and how the policies have changed this year, it can be very different. But, so political this yeah. year with
3: Telluride and all the can holdovers.
4: But uh, you know, for me who was not at can and was not at Telluride. Uh just like last year, I mean, it's it's an overwhelming buffet of, uh, of really choice stuff. Uh, and I wouldn't have it any other way. And the, the first two days, I mean, I was seeing great film after great film. First, the Can holdovers and then some other stuff. Um, and it's been a little bit more hit or miss for me since then. We'll talk about, I guess, some of the individual films in a minute. But um, still, uh, almost once a day at least... I found something that's really knocked my socks off. And it's always most satisfying when it's a complete discovery that you don't expect when it's not a new film by a master filmmaker who you've loved forever. Um, what, what film was that for you? That surprise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the one that I've been raving about most that falls into that category is a film by Peter Strickland called The Duke of Burgundy. Peter Strickland made... Um, Barbarian Sounds. Yes, and has a new Bjork documentary on a concert film, Biophilia. Which
3: I actually think is... Where is that play? I it's opening was... soon. Yeah, I think it's yeah. playing at some festival. But uh, were you a fan
4: of Barbarian? I, I, was, I was very impressed by Barbarian yeah. Sound Studio, but I was not necessarily... Not, a, not a great film, but no. inspired. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's clearly a, a, has a vision. He's very enchanted by Giallo filmmaking, and he's, uh, he's technically very gifted. But this is a, it's a quantum leap forward. I compared it to the, the leap between Down Terrace and Kill List for Ben Wheatley, who actually executive produces this movie with uh, Amy Jump and i human toilet the it was one of two films i saw that day involving human toilets i do not want to reveal too much about what it's about i think there'll be opportunities for that later if you're really curious it's called the duke of burgundy you can look it up but so i went into it blind and uh and now i see (laughs) but it it would it's the kind of movie that would kill at fantastic fest almost as much as another movie that we saw uh which, what which, are you alluding to? <laughs> which, um, I think we should give Patches an opportunity to talk about some discoveries he made but Tokyo Tribe is the opposite of discovery because it's by Shion Sono who is a completely demented I
3: think it's still a discovery I think that's the beauty it of Sono, work, right? Yeah. You don't
4: really know what you're getting until
3: you're kind of in the thick <laughs> of it I didn't even know what I was getting until I was 20 minutes into the movie
4: <laughs> Well, it, it did world premiere here in The Midnight Madness and that will be a fantastic best uh, I think it's safe to say it's the year's best and this is no hyperbole the year's best uh, martial arts rap opera softcore porn film. <laughs> um.
3: Not since actually playing Paw Rappa the Rapper have I felt like I was watching a movie called Paul Rappa the Rapper. No, um, yeah, I totally agree that uh, I, I was uh, s- swept up in this film and this demented vision um, that's kind of West Side Story, Gangs of New York. The Warriors. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it definitely, the Tokyo tribes are actual Tribes in it what is it a futuristic it's, version It's alternate universe It's, it's like a, some
4: somewhat, dystopia yeah it's a definitely a dystopian vibe the, the tribes run tokyo uh, and and they and, rap
3: and they kill each other and they um,
4: have sex with different animate and inanimate objects uh, and i think i described it in my in my review as a uh, what is it it was like a fuck i can't remember i'm so tired something something to do with a teenage quentin tarantino making a um. Wow, this is just good podcasting right now. Yeah, uh, it's, this is perfect. It's great. It's cr- De- people love Dead Air. Yeah. Dead Air <laughs> is the key to a great podcast. Anyway, it's a, and, and I think the movie actually is very fiercely uh, anti-misogyny. Uh, it, 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 it has a lot
3: to say about a sexual yeah. representation and, and the way the men are controlling the women in this universe. Yeah, and maybe even some... Uh, a lot of people we know didn't like it, though. Well, a lot of people we know What's wrong stupid. with that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs>
4: That's one way to put it. Uh, no, it's, uh, it's definitely not for all tastes. Um, I think it's safe to say that if you enjoyed... I mean, Sono is so diverse, but if you enjoyed Why Don't You Play in Hell, his most recent film, which is actually still waiting to come out via, uh, via Draft House Films... Uh, if you saw that and enjoyed it, you are very likely to enjoy this If your familiarity with sono is more in the love exposure vein um it could be hit or miss but and it's exhausting i mean it's two hours of like constant insanity that continues to top itself um and it's all wrapped and uh, it can definitely tucker you out but um, I actually think I the like action it. is better than
3: in something like the raid because I agree it has more subsets it ha- it's wilder yeah uh, because of the rap it's such a colorful film it's mm-hmm. such a, it's it's very demented so what
4: did what did you say that you weren't expecting to to well I was, I was
3: good I was gonna say to you that we saw Tokyo tribes a rap musical, after a perhaps more traditional Mm -hmm. musical that I was anticipating. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not a surprise for me, but uh, we caught The Last Five Years, um, a film by Richard LaGravines, who we both agree (laughs) has not really made a good film, Beautiful director, creatures. beautiful creatures. I I actually really enjoy beautiful creatures, but I mean that's it's not a vision necessarily. No. Um, but he clearly has uh, an investment in this musical by uh, Jason Robert Patrick um, about these this young couple uh, and. You picked up with Anna Kendrick, and I can't remember this other mofo's name. Jordan... Jordan... Juice. Juice. (laughs) Um, What's George? He was on... He was in Broadway on Newsies. He's He's in Joyful Noise. Anyway, he is totally miscast, but he he plays uh, the male half of this relationship. Anna Kendrick is the girl, and... uh, It's kind of two timelines going in opposite directions. You see her at the end of their relationship kind of backtracking to when they first met, and he is singing songs about when they first met and going to the eventual breakup. It's a very interesting uh, setup. I have seen the original musical, which I adore. I love all the music, and um, this film worked for me mostly. Uh, A tricky adaptation, totally bungled by, like, awful filmmaking i've never seen something that looks so cheap and directionless they really just went out there with their their dslr and shot like around central park it it looks like it
4: was shot on an iphone the camera work is just muddy and hideous um it's just it looks so bad and if you're not enjoying the music which i most definitely wasn't um in large part because the male lead is miscast it can be a tough sit. If anybody leading up to this movie's Valentine's Day anti-programming release or counter-programming release tells you that it's like a musical version of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless <laughs> Mind, spit in their face because they are lying. Uh,
3: but... <laughs> it's a little better. That Anna Kendrick is, I think, incredible in this movie. She's great. Partly because the music is so good to begin with. You mm-hmm. didn't care for it. I really enjoy it. So if you enjoy the show, if you're a fan of last five years, I think you'll appreciate this, but you'll be kind of surprised how... Uh, not polished, it is. Uh, as far as surprises, this was probably not a surprise for you, but um, I was not familiar with Roy Anderson's oh, yes. films, uh, whereas you are, I think. we we got to see Pigeon sat on a branch and reflected
4: Pigeon sat on a branch and reflected on existence okay
3: yes and it just won Venice and it's kind of the beat
4: Birdman (laughs) at Venice (laughs) which brings
3: you so much bleed I I
4: mean I haven't seen Birdman I'm very excited for it but the fact that that just all these beat writers across the world had to be like what movie what bird
3: (laughs) Uh, and it's a particularly strange movie it's the end of a trilogy that Anderson has been directing what was when was Songs from the second Songs floor. on the second
4: floor was two thousand two, and then You the Living was like two thousand nine.
3: And these are all kind of vignettes, strange. It's it's Python esque, mm-hmm. um, trash humpers ish. Mm. Well, it's like very much, well. This one's all about like old people, old Swedish people standing around acting very
4: odd. Well, that's what they're all about. They're all okay. The, that's what I. They're, they're all the films are comprised of. Uh, of this one is only thirty nine. Camera setups, they're all locked off, the camera never moves, there are never With cuts. these exquisite sets, perfectly like shaded and
3: colored with uh, the art direction is insane.
4: its I mean, there is a one long shot, and they're all, not long shot rather, long takes, uh, there's one long take in particular about halfway through this movie that must run almost like 15 minutes or more. And it's mind blowing, but not in the way that people traditionally think of long takes as being so impressive with all these uh, orchestrated camera movements and tracking shots and whatnot. This is uh, just purely like what you can, how you can redefine an image and all the things you can pack into it and transform it. And it feels like an entire film festival unto itself. There are so many different things that this movie touches upon in its sort of. as sort of tries to distill the essence of human existence, and that could sound like a reach, but this this trilogy is called. It says in a title card at the beginning of the film, it's the last film in a trilogy about uh, the nature of a being, uh, it's like nature of a human being, or yeah,
3: you what know, well, what humans are all about, and confronting death. It has a lot to do uh, with the end of life as a trilogy mm-hmm. capper. Might, but it's still absurd comedy. There is this, there are visual laughsiness. There's, there's a scene in this movie where an old woman is clinging to her handbag, and her family members are just trying to drag it out of her, and she's screaming, and they're dragging
4: this hospital bed around the room. She's about to die, and they don't want her to like. They don't want her to die holding the handbag because they want to sell what's inside of it like right away.
3: (laughs) And And yet, and then later in the film, I'm not going to spoil anything because this movie will definitely come out now that it's won Venice and that sort of thing. But... I mean, it takes a very dark turn. There's uh, a big scene with the military intruding oh, yeah. upon a small town and then some nightmarish dream sequences. Um, like it's a, really, it's,
4: really nightmarish. Yeah, some stuff.
3: people, uh, I, not, not gross, people weren't losing their lunch, but they were morally questioning this film by the end of it. Yeah. Um, A lot of people come to Toronto to, to scout for the award season, which is your favorite topic. Why would they do that? Um, they do that but you and I just saw kind of almost like the double feature... That no one wants to admit is a true double feature, which is the theory of everything, mm-hmm. uh, James Marsh's Stephen Hawking biopic, and then The Imitation Game, which mm. is Benedict Cumberbatch as Alan Turing. Um, are these films <laughs> giving you hope for the Oscar season? Because they'll be dominating them soon, and you're probably going to have to talk about them quite yeah, a bit. This
4: is going to be this is going to be a story. Uh, you know, the there's going to be You can already predict the waves of like, oh, it's, it's these are two sides of the same coin, and then oh, they're not. That's similar you have to take them separately and then but no really they are they are uh, it's uncanny how similar these films are given their release dates uh the imitation game has the Weinstein push behind it so you'll definitely be hearing about that um I think that they are both c- completely unexceptional down the middle biopics they each have their own strengths um I think the imitation game which is sh- made by the guy has who made an advantage yeah I mean it's it's shot as Boringly as possible. Um, it the, does absolutely nothing interesting with the camera. It has a beautiful Alexander Disblot score. Uh, maybe not his best, but you know, not his it's best. good. I'm, um, I'm unimpressed it's, as it's a snob. Handsomely adorned. Uh, Kira Knightley gives a strong performance. It's very exciting. It's a World War II film. They're cracking the Well, the, I think uh, that yeah, it's
3: it's built as a thriller because it's so naturally one, you know, cracking the codes and a ticking clock, you know. I think Mark Strong's head of the MI six tells Cumberbatch at some point that uh every minute they talk, three people yeah. have died in the war or something like but, that. Uh, they really There's urgency to this film.
4: With the framing device as it is and, and the way they handle Turing's later life, they really do a disservice to see. I um, like that stuff, but don't you think that they, without sort of revealing anything, that they um, reveal. Yeah, of history. course, I mean, of course, it's no, but I mean, revealing how the film handles it explicitly, it's uh, it really soft pedals how how his country sort of betrayed him and sent him to the an early grave, and like how I think it's pretty damning by the end of
3: it. I, just, I mean, a all, lot
4: all, all of the time, it's well, what
3: what we can crazy. say here is, if you don't know the story of Alan Turing, Alan
4: Turing was gay. And And the movie uh, doesn't—you know—suffered for it, uh, but it's just—it doesn't—it doesn't doesn't really seem to have the conviction to engage with that. It's very much uh, as our colleague and flatmate uh tim Grierson describes it very much a a weinstein movie um it, it's very much a king's speech type of thing it does not really want it's not to,
3: as King speechy though as the theory of everything which no, is possible it, it's much more boring
4: it, yeah but it, it just as a final note on the imitation it really doesn't want to seriously engage with the things that made alan turing human he's really sort of like a human drax the destroyer it's like broadly uh asperger'sy and like it's 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 handsome and puffy and whatever. Uh, the theory of everything is really just Felicity Jones and uh, and uh, what's his face Eddie Redmayne. Eddie Redmayne, like who is perfectly mimicking Stephen Hawking. I don't know, you know. It's it's hard to draw the line. So like, this is a great performance when he's has such a. You know, a living template to model himself after. Even if he models himself after, oh, well, I think well. it's still
3: great performance because even though when he's compromised and he's like curling in on himself, he is right. all about the eyes. If that's yeah. a, if James Marsh gets anything right, which he barely does, because it's so plainly. <laughs> conceived and plainly shot it's so straightforward and boring for 40 straight minutes when they're just talking about getting his PhD or whatnot by the end of the movie it's Eddie Redmayne's eyes doing all the talking and it's astonishing and And Felicity Jones is even better as his wife and like this weird mm. relationship that these two had and how there was like third wheels and then fourth wheels that were
4: totally acceptable and that's when it gets really interesting but it's yeah. so
3: far into the movie
4: I actually agree with uh, Patch's take on this entirely I think that the first was a hundred minutes, or the first eighty minutes, which is like really standard biopic stuff. Like here he is as a brilliant young mathematician, and no, he's got a, a ALS, and like that's not so happy. And, I keep telling uh, people
3: I wish that movie could start when he like falls down a yeah, stairs no, or something. He's like instantly he has a problem. We have to
4: see that we know Stephen Hawking is a genius. We don't need to see him as a kid. We don't need to see. <laughs> we don't need to see. Uh, you know him meeting Felicity Jones. If we if we started with them as a married couple, it would be. Just as much, if not more, heartbreaking to watch her. I mean, there's there's a morbid element that is also sort of thrown under the rug, but where she is like, she's told that he's only going to live for two years, and that is sort of the burden that she takes upon herself. And there's a moment in the film where she's like, I thought this was only when he realizes how hard it is for her to take care of him. Um, and she's like, I thought this was only going to be for two years. Not, and it's the implication that, uh, not that she necessarily hoped that he was going to die, but that that was sort of the challenge she had laying before her. And it's really difficult to sort of adjust midstream. Uh, it definitely captures the human thing between them in the later stages. It also overplays its hand with, uh, like, there's one, not a dream sequence, but there's a, there's... Uh, Little flights of fancy that I don't know if they. The play Kaiser Soze moment. Yeah. There's, a, there's a Kaiser Soze. I think the very last line of the movie is uh, is quite nice. Um, it doesn't really. It leaves you with a pleasant taste, which, if we're talking about it in the context of awards, and ugh, um, you're not going to slip directly into a sugar coma at the end, right, of the right? But I think that it leaves, it will leave people buzzing. Uh, but oh boy, it, this is not a uh, neither <laughs> buzzing. Of these are great films. If you put a gun to my head, I'll take the. Let, well, let's game. get
3: well, as we wrap up here. Well, let's get to great films. Is there anything else that stands out? I, I actually, I'm going to throw one out because you will agree with Force Majeure. Yes. Which um, comes out
4: very soon. You'll all be able to see it. Oh, it, it does uh, in October, October 24th in New York and L. A. At least. Oh, fantastic! And Magnolia, um, so probably VOD.
3: This movie, kind of, uh, I didn't know what to expect. It's about a uh, Swedish family who goes. Are they? I think they're in the French Alps, and they uh, yeah, they're, they're on a they're skiing somewhere. vacation. And uh, the force majeure in question is an is an avalanche that they experience that, that does not harm them, but. Um, Scares the bejesus out of the dad, um, and the dad runs away and leaves the mom and kids standing there near the avalanche, and kind of plays it off like nothing ever happened. And this sends the mom into an existential crisis; she's downward spiraling,
4: and it's all about their vacation. But it's very funny; it's it's droll as all get out. It's hysterical. Um, It's uh, it's very much sort of like if any, any of you listening saw the loneliest planet a few years ago. It's sort of like that, sort of family style, and very cold and. Role, but uh, um, it gets, definitely gets into the same sort of issues of gender dynamics. It's beautifully filmed um yeah i really this is a really really short All that, film. yeah i even
3: recalled grand budapest hotel because of the expert resort uh-huh. photography uh-huh. going on in this movie and
4: it's one of about 93 different films uh on this festival <laughs> circuit where brady corbett has a uh has a cameo foreign <laughs> films specifically <laughs> right. films he has no right to be he in he's in the clouds of sils Maria, which is the exceptional new olivier size film he is in uh he plays Princess Kaguya in uh, Studio Ghibli. Oh yes, of course. Princess <laughs> he Kaguya. had beautiful hair in that, uh, which is very, very good. Oh, I a masterpiece!
3: I, I will, I'll use that word. Uh, oh. I enjoyed the hell out of that movie, and the animation style. Uh, if Ghibli goes out on that one, that's fine. Although they, I they, think have they have another, another one, in one in the can. can.
4: Yeah, they do. <laughs> uh, but it's not by Takahata or Miyazaki, unfortunately. Yeah.
3: He does not think he will ever make another film. That was the most depressing thing to say for the Q&A after that. And he's like, I've got a uh, 12th century Warlords film that I want to make and I just cannot see how I'd ever make another movie ever again. I'm like, okay, great. Bye. (laughs) Um, Eden by Mia
4: Hansen Love is very, very good. The movie about nothing or EDM. It's about EDM. Yeah, it's like 20-year epic about uh, sort of parallel to the rise of Daft Punk about somebody who knew them but was not quite so successful. It's sort of about his personal stagnation. Uh, I saw a film called Heymoo, which was written by Bong Joon-ho and directed mm-hmm. by the guy who co-wrote Memories of Murder, which Bong Joon-ho directed. Um, and it's about human smuggling in a Korean fishing boat in 1998. It's not a true story, <laughs> but it uses the How time advantage. How specific? Well, because it's where the Korean uh, financial crisis was happening, and the story is very much rooted in these things. Uh, it's excellent. It's definitely a lot more organic and grounded than uh, Snowpiercer, but it... It's very much in the vein of these Korean new way films that are extreme and, and somehow still rooted in uh, the sort of absurd but recognizable human behavior. I, actually, uh, I've seen a lot of really good films.
3: I, I have to go to bat for Tusk, for Kevin yeah, Smith, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I was clearly not anticipating at all. Uh, I don't remember. the Maybe Dogma is the last Kevin Smith movie that I appreciated on any level. But Tusk really surprised me. It is. It is... Body. It is Cronenbergian body horror uh, stuffed into sta- strange brew. It is very Canadian. It is very fucked up. Uh, I had a ball seeing it at midnight, and uh, and now <laughs> David is wearing a walrus mask for the rest of this uh, podcast, and that's scaring the shit out of me now. My
4: voice has changed. I'm behind the. You have, the have to do walrus. your
3: walrus scream. That's what. I, ha- uh... I can't
4: because I didn't see the movie. <clears throat> it's like that. <clears throat>
3: Perfect. Uh, David, any other films that you want to give a shout-out <laughs> uh, before we wrap up? Uh, Take off that goddamn walrus mask. Uh, let's see. Uh,
4: well, I think that... Not I too mean, much. What's uh, the worst thing that you equalizer. see? The Equalizer. The <laughs>
3: Equalizer. On the horizon. I think we both agree. The Equalizer is pretty terrible. Has absolutely no right plague at the film festival. Wow. Uh, all for the stars. All for the red carpets. Uh, which is what you get at film festivals, unfortunately, sometimes. But sometimes. We knock that one out. Pretty early, yeah. Um, I would I would add Saint Vincent to that shit pile. Unfortunately, there's I see a lot of people kind of softballing it on Saint Vincent. I think they really want Bill Murray to win an Oscar, and it's just not going to happen because the movie Uncle Buck has more bite than Saint Vincent. it, it is a Tribeca movie. If I oh, know. wow. <laughs> and I say that in the nicest way possible. That's a dig. Uh,
4: and the last thing, we just came back from a movie that we had differing opinions on called The Keeping Room, which is. Uh, Unmissable, says I David say Ehrlich. Britt Marling, fantastic. It feels like Cold Mountain meets uh, the Straw Dogs. Uh, I thought it was really, really excellent. Uh, distribution on that one remains unclear because this was the world premiere. Uh, it was but, better
3: than Britt Marling's last movie, The Better Angels. I'll give you that.
4: I mean, it was better than better than her
3: last Civil War era, uh, poetic.
4: Better than Eye Origins, and it was better okay. than. Uh, it's. I mean, I think it it's, is. I it has something our, to say. I think, I think it's there's, best there are
3: gender movie. politics. There are cool Civil War shootouts. There are women
4: running around with with muskets. David gets uh, off on that. Apparently. You should know that. Uh, no, I thought this was really, uh, in, in all, honestly, a really fantastic movie. Uh, hopefully we'll talk about it more in the future. What are you, what are you looking forward to? As we, uh, I'm going to yeah. see Nightcrawler tomorrow, which I uh, hear very good things about. People love it. and uh, I have to
3: catch up with Duke of Burgundy. We're going to see Still Alice, which apparently maybe. might, it might blow our minds.
4: starts in eight hours from now, so we'll see. <laughs> if you but, get there.
3: Oh, wait, quickly. What did you think of the Bombback?
4: Oh, uh, yeah, which A24 bought today. Um, I have mixed feelings about the back. I think that it's very it's broad for him. It's not really about. Uh, it's called While We're Young. Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts is a married couple, and then Amanda, who are in their forties and sort of complacent, they meet a married couple in their twenties who live in Brooklyn, played by Adam Driver and Amanda Seyfried. And like, whoa, forty-year-old people are different than twenty-year-old people, but that's actually not what it ends up being about. Uh, it's very funny. Uh, it's as Mike Ryan would say, it's uneven, but resonates. Uh, I think it has some of Bombax. Best stuff, and also some of his worst, and they come in in consecutive scenes, and it's very jarring. Um, but it's also uh, it's gonna it plays it's accessible. It's does what it, it's very focused in a way that is and none of his films have been, which is why he's been drawing comparison to Woody Allen. Um, yeah, I think everyone you know, will be checking. It, it, out. Will come out. it will come out. Well, David, this is where I leave you. Oh
3: God! Is both a movie a tiff and the end of this segment. Back with to the other guys. Yeah.
4: Watch
3: out for the medallion. My diamonds are reckless.
1: that does it for today's fighting in the war room uh we may or may not be back on friday there's not a lot to review all the good movies are in toronto so you'll have to talk to our toronto hero about all that uh anyway one way or another we'll be back next week in the meantime tell the people who you are
0: i'm dave gonzalez i spell that first part d-a-7-e which is my twitter handle as we spell it d-a-v-e um uh, we're not I write yes. For instance, the places that I write are on I love D A V E G O N Z A L E S dot com. That's I Love Dave Gonzalez dot com. You could also go to a website for this podcast specifically, which is a lot less narcissistic of me, because it has all our past episodes. If you're subscribed to our feed, you might notice that occasionally it deletes old episodes just to keep everything moving speedily for you guys. But they haven't completely disappeared. They're on our website where you could download them at your own convenience. At that website, is fighting in the war Dot com.
2: I'm Joanna Robinson you can find me most days on vanityfair.com you can follow me on twitter at joe wrote this uh, and you can also give us a phone call a phone call or just a call at 914-410-6450 and tell us who you think should survive the stand that's a that's a terrible question
1: ooh is the answer not me like <laughs> uh, us want ourselves to survive okay <laughs> Uh, I'm Katie Rich you can find me at uh, VanityFair.com and on Twitter at Katie Rich K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H Twitter is also where you can find our entire podcast arguing with each other and you and uh, you can answer this week's lightning round question which was in
0: honor of Dolphin Tale 2 when have you felt the most actively embarrassed for an actor in a movie
1: Uh, for the record that lightning round question refers to the dolphin just so we don't offend anybody make it clear uh thank you for listening and we'll be back talking to you sometime soon Yay. Yay.
0: that was speedy guys
1: nobody laughed my dolphin joke <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh i can edit that in now
4: become one with the and don't worry about me stepping all over your feet when i move you move just like that hey yeah Bring that back When I move you cold Just like that When I move you cold Just like that When I move you cold Just like that Hell yeah, A C J Bring that back Stand up